Kwaba. This is Komi Gayanfi. Thank you for joining me again today on this African Studies Lecture Series. Uh, we are going to continue with Chapter 2 in this series, which is African Kingdoms uh, and their Kings and Queens. When talking about African Kingdoms, I think that in my opinion, it starts with the Nile River, which I consider the central nervous system of Africa. I believe the Nile River basin and the valleys surrounding the Nile River is where the cradle of civilization uh, takes place. I believe that over the course of a millennia, the Nile River has moved, things have changed, climate changed, um, and that all were determining factors in what we see today or what we don't see today. But let's just say that the Nile uh, River, in my opinion, is the central nervous system of Africa. And with that being said, the earliest forms of civilization uh, along the Nile, such as uh, the cities of Axiom uh, needed the Nile. The Nile was vitally important for these civilizations to exist and for the people to be able to exist. The Nile River floods every year, and when it floods, it can cause much devastation. Um, it also can leave behind fertile soil that be can be used to feed many people. Uh, the Egyptians can be considered the earliest civilization to monopolize the Nile River. Now, granted, they understood the power of the Nile, but they also understood the necessity for controlling that if they wanted to survive and use the soil that was surrounding the river. They did this by the use of canals and dams and they channeled water throughout uh, around fields that they could, air, uh, that they could um, plant, they, around cities that they could build along the banks of the Nile. So in order for you to be able to communicate how to do these special skills and techniques which they learned over the course of hundreds of years, it required a system of writing or communicating, written communication, not just oral communication. So the Egyptians were the first to figure this out and they applied this by the use of hieroglyphics. Without getting too deep into hieroglyphics, hieroglyphics has three forms. Uh, they, the picture represents the actual animal, the picture represents the sound that the word that was used to represent the actual animal and then the picture combined with other pictures formed ideologies uh, to express emotions and other thoughts. The Egyptians used their written language to organize the people. This is an unfathomable task to organize these thousands of people to be able to have a central grainage storage system where you were stockpiling uh, store, uh, food store stocks for 
eventualities. Uh, they were able to um, have advances in medicine and science all because of the written language. Those that could write in ancient Egypt were the most powerful people in ancient Egypt. Writing was considered sacred. The written word was considered, considered sacred. When something, when an object was written down and a name was given to it, uh, that gave power to the person that created that. So if you can imagine a society where the majority of the people were illiterate or did not have a written form of communication and a written form is entered in, so the power structures that be use that written form. So you would imagine the people that understood that written form of language and had that type of control were the people that had the power. Knowledge is power, as they say. And ancient Egypt is a prime example of that. Uh, the rulers of ancient Egypt, the pharaohs, you know, they were thought to know where the water was. Well, in actuality, what they were able to do was they had the, the documentation and records that were passed down through generations to show them how to control uh, the Nile River to a certain extent. You could never fully control it, but to a certain extent. We do know that there were 30 Egyptian dynasties. Um, part of the problem is there are these transitional periods between dynasties. Some transitional periods are as little as 200, others almost 400. I believe there's three total transitional periods that add up to about a thousand years worth of information or knowledge that we don't have. The knowledge that we do have is based primarily on uh, two different uh, ancient texts. One was actually on parchment, the other one was uh, in, engraved in stone, and they actually gave you the chronological order of the pharaohs that pre-existed them. Part of the problem also is that when a new pharaoh took power, they often destroyed the remnants of the old pharaoh. They would scratch out any engravings that spoke of the existence. They would destroy monuments or statues. They did whatever they could to uh, reduce uh, what people remembered about that old Pharaoh or God uh, and replaced it with them, which would be the new Pharaoh or God. Now, Pharaohs uh, strongly believed in organization. They believed that uh, they were trying to avoid chaos at all costs through this organization. They also believed that if they did the right things on earth, they were guaranteed a um, comfortable afterlife. So. They did whatever they could to ensure that. One interesting note for many years, there was this argument or uh, claims being made that the Egyptians were white or they were transplants from across the Mediterranean that brought this extravagant technology and advancements to Africa. Well, that could, couldn't be farther from the truth. If you have a open eye, not a prejudiced eye, and you don't have uh, pre-existing uh, intentions when you look at Egypt, if you go into the tombs, if you look at 
the reliefs and the paintings on the walls, you'll see that the Egyptians uh, were of many complexions, all darker complexions. They range from dark skin to lighter skin dark. And um, so this does not lend for the idea that they were transplants from a different area. What is more than likely the case is early on, because of the gravitational pull of that central nervous system, which is the Nile, that it had people, uh, nomads from the north, you had raiders from the north, you had settlers from all areas that came into uh, the Nile River Valley and created these civilizations together. So there was a spirit of cooperation that transcended uh, color lines in Egypt. And I believe that was something that for a long time, uh, early Egyptologists who were usually, who were all Europeans, sought to cover up. They sought to diffuse this idea that uh, Africa could have created such amazing wonders as they did. Just below Egypt, to the south of Egypt, in what is now called the Sudan, what was known as the Kingdom of Kush, uh, also known as Nubia. Now, archaeologists, some archaeologists say that Kush does predate Egypt, but because Kush did not believe in writing. They were strong believers in the oral tradition. Much of the information about Kush is lost. They are most notably known to have invented archery. And it was said that the Kushite archers were the finest in the world and they were hired out quite often by the Egyptians to fight in their armies. Kush is also known for having a queen who was one of the first to drive the Romans out of their land and uh, force the Romans to the negotiating table to sign a treaty. Uh, her name was uh, Kandake uh, and the last name was Amani Renus. Uh, she was the one-eyed queen. She had an injury, so she only had one eye. And uh, was she skillfully defended her kingdom against the Roman Empire. You know, she had actually took over, conquered some Roman settlements. And there was this statue of uh, the Emperor Augustus at the settlement. And she tore the statue down, took the head of the statue off, and buried it underneath her palace. And it was interesting, uh, in 1914, archaeologists uncovered um, that buried head underneath her palace. The term Nubian queen, which is used as a compliment to African women, is derived from uh, the tales of Nubian queens and their strength. There were several Kushite kings and queens who went on to become pharaohs of Egypt. Uh, often they changed their names and in one case they actually changed their physical appearance 
to look like a male. The relationship between the Kushites and Egyptians could be considered tumultuous. There is a period of about 200 years where there is no information uh, in, in regards to their relationship. And then there were other periods in time where their relationships were very strong. Obviously, when uh, Upper and lower, lower Egypt were unified into one Egypt, Cush uh, had a big part in that and um, uh, were favored in, the new Egypt, in that new Egyptian empire. Uh, on a side note, they did find uh, donkey fossils and what that means it, in the Sudan. What that means is if they were using donkeys, that means that the Sudan at one point did have moisture and they were able to, uh, because donkeys require a lot of water to drink. So in order for them to have donkeys, this means that they had much moisture in the area. Which goes along the lines of everything else that we've learned about uh, climate change in Africa about seven to eight thousand years ago. The kingdoms of Kush uh, still to this day are shrouded in secrecy and a lot of uh, speculation because, well, there are at least 300 uh, pyramids in Kush or in Sudan that represent the kingdom of Kush. And there's a lot of archaeology and excavating that has not taken place um, to help fill in some of the gaps that we know or that we don't know about Kush uh, and its relationship to Egypt. We do know uh, that Kushites were a darker skinned and that their hair was straight. Uh, they speak of two types of Africans, um, and I hate to use old scientific terms because I believe them to be inaccurate, but they did talk of a Negroid race that uh, uh, dominated south of the Sahara. So, uh, but in Kush, they were, and if you look at people from the Sudan today, you will notice that they are darker complected, but they do have a straighter hair. If we travel farther south, in Africa, uh, we encounter the towers of Great Zimbabwe. Uh, these the towers were discovered by European explorers, and the explorers were in such awe over the advanced uh, masonry and brickwork that was utilized in making the castle at Great Zimbabwe that they. Uh, believed it was made by celestial beings. It couldn't possibly have been made by the Africans. And that was a theme throughout. It seemed like explorers from Europe came to Africa. They'd find all these things. And every time they found something that they couldn't explain, they automatically assumed it wasn't the Africans that did it. So, and, and, you know, and that's discouraging because... If they would have went in with an unbiased eye looking at some of these things, we may have come out knowing a lot more about the origins and uh, what all took place in the making them. But they were so, you know, it's interesting. I can imagine the explorers who found the towers at uh, Zimbabwe, uh, 
And if they had African guys there, the African guys probably were looking at each other saying, yeah, we've been known about this place. This place has been here forever. And they probably, in their oral traditions, knew all about it. But the Europeans in their uh, arrogance, doubtfully, I doubt if they even try to learn the history from the Africans. We're going to now move from southern Africa to the western portion of the continent. And we're going to start with one of the oldest empires in western Africa, which is the Ghana Empire. Uh, the Ghana Empire, the name Ghana is derived from the local dialect and means king. It's not to be confused with the country that shares its name to this day. The Ghana Empire was a vast West African empire. Uh, it's estimated to be to have started around 300 uh, AD uh, to, uh, and it lasted all the way up until 1076 AD. Uh, so that's about 776 years. Uh, the founder, Dinga Sise, consolidated uh, several of the Soninke tribes uh, to form Ghana. Uh, Ghana used a feudal system where the local chieftains paid tribute to the high king. Uh, gold was traded for salt rock through the Sahara city of Awadain. Uh, they were known for caravan trading posts and having oasis trading posts uh, throughout the Sahara. It made the rulers of Ghana very wealthy. They were able to charge, if you wanted passage through the empire of Ghana, they were able to charge you for that. They also controlled all of the mining operations in Ghana, so they controlled all of the gold um, in the area. And with uh, the river systems that ran east to west, it allowed them to transport and use that. So uh, they liked salt and the Arabs from across the north would bring salt down, uh, big chunks of salt rock they would bring down uh, and trade that for gold. And it's said that the salt rock was so important that they actually traded it pound for pound. So. Salt rock and gold were of equal value uh, to the kingdom of Ghana. Uh, Ghana did adopt uh, Islam in the 11th century, which brought uh, writing up until that point. It was all the oral tradition that was passed down. The camel was introduced in Ghana around 200 AD, and this was a major milestone in the transport of goods and services, obviously across the Sahara Desert, as that Sahara Desert had expanded. Uh, there was a library in Chinguete, which uh, made the Ghana Empire also a economic, a intellectual hub for the area. And inevitably, overgrazing destroyed much of the farmland and weakened the empire. And the Ghana Empire was eventually taken over by the Mali Empire. So I think we're going to conclude 
this segment as far as the history portion is concerned and for just a minute we're going to talk about how can we use what we talked about today in the classroom well it's obvious when we're talking about history if you can some way incorporate um, the African perspective of history into your curriculum that would be more inclusive and invite those students in that normally would not be as excited to learn about European history them learning about African history may excite them a little bit more and uh, help them to become more engaged so yes finding ways to include uh, African history into your curriculum uh, and specifically pre-colonial African history and the kings and queens representation is everything we talked about that before and for a student of African descent to walk into a classroom and maybe see a map that has an African king on it such as Mansa Musa or to see pictures of more current African kings in all the regalia that may spark an interest or a sense of self-worth or pride in that student of African descent. So you have to find ways to show that imagery in the classroom. You have to find ways to include it in your textbooks. Uh, UNESCO uh, back, uh, I would say, I believe it was in the 40s and 50s, did an outstanding book series on Africa. I'm sorry, this would have been in the 60s. But this book series on Africa uh, is a must-have because it was basically the history of Africa written by Africans. And it goes into great detail, uh, more detail than I think any of the other history books I have read have gone into. So you have to find ways to incorporate uh, book series, have those on your shelves, um, have parts, chapters that students may read. Um, I'm not saying that you disregard what we what we learn about European history because it's relevant to the United States and the creation of the United States. All I'm saying is if you are looking for ways to engage with your students, specifically your students of African descent, then it would behoove you to find ways to get this stuff in, infused in your curriculum. Like I say from day one, if you can learn from these modules and have a broader worldview when you approach a student and the way you want to teach that student and the way you want to share information with that student, you will find that you'll have more success when engaging that student and uh, in the end that student will be uh, a more well-rounded individual because they will have the knowledge of self, not just the knowledge of others. All right. Well, thank you again for joining me today. Um, we will continue the next section on Af African empires. We will start talking about the Mali empire, which is my favorite section or one of my favorite empires to talk about. So with that being said, this is Komi Gayafi and I say Akwaba. <laughs>